as you've made your way there, let's pause and pray. Father God, we trust in you who has appointed this day and this hour for the means of edification of your saints, for the means of calling your lost sheep home, Lord, for the means of um, preparing us, for the means of giving us hope. So that, Lord, we look to you for in this hour. We confess our sins to you, which may be plenty, and even which may be unknown in the depths of our heart and our mind. And so, Lord, please cleanse us from this unrighteousness. Thank you for your loving kindness and your patience, which allows us to continue on the narrow way, on the path. Lord, we ask that you may bless, may ask that your presence be um, very evident as we celebrate um, you and your gifts your spirit which lives within us this afternoon. Pray that people would know you by the love we have for one another. Lord, I thank you for this word which gives us all we need for life and godliness and hope and things to come. So I pray that through these promises and through these truths, your people would be made to be more than conquerors, knowing that your love doesn't end. You will continue. You will finish this work you started in your people. And again, we come to this hour knowing that this is part of that. So please allow us, Lord. Please grace us. Please bless us with your Spirit's mighty work through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, the arrival of lawlessness. What's on the screen is not what we're, that's what we looked at last week. This week we're talking about the arrival of lawlessness. We looked at last week the promise of two things that are to happen before the second coming of our Lord, the rebellion whatever that may be, and the man of lawlessness, which we would typically personify as the Antichrist, or even though there are many Antichrists, Jesus said, that are in the world, both at his time uh, here and now, there is this one who is going to um, have this unique power of deception, of wickedness, of signs and wonders. He's going to have the backing of Satan, is what we're going to learn today, to do the things that he does to lead astray those who have refused the truth and so refused to be saved. And he will seek to deceive anyone he can. It's an Advent of sorts. You know, we celebrate Advent during Christmas. We, we recognize the incarnate Word. We recognize Christ's coming. That's what Advent is. It's a special arrival. 
this is a counterfeit of the second coming of Christ. It's a, it's a counterfeit of, of Christ coming in power to reign. It's, it's false. It will prove to be false. And false not in the sense that it's not real. Not in the sense that it's not going to happen. Not in the sense that even the things that are manifested in the signs and wonders from the evil one uh, aren't going to happen. It's, it's false in the sense that they lead to nowhere. They produce nothing except death. There is nothing to be gained from them. They don't prove to be fruitful. They don't prove to help anything or profit anyone. They just further lead and signify the coming judgment of Satan and his angels and those who are deceived by them. And the, the issue here in verses 9 through 12 is the rejection of the truth. You have to have that indefinite article there because truth is not relevant, as you'll hear it explained away today. My truth is not your truth, and if I decide that this is true for me, I understand that that might not be true for you. And what happens then? You send the world into chaos and confusion, and there is no basis for what reality is or what truth is. But we recognize through the scriptures that this is the indefinite article, the truth. The truth, namely being that the gospel presents the problem with our world and with mankind. It presents the holy, righteous nature of God, and therefore it presents the problem that occurs when those two realities, those two truths, are existing. And it wraps the whole thing up with the awesome reality that Jesus' actual physical death and his actual physical resurrection uh, actually means something to people who would repent and believe. That's the truth. You can also uh, go out further and see that the truth of how this world came to be is God uh, calling things into existence from nothing. It's the only actual logical explanation for how you get a universe that is suspended over nothing in which human beings and the animal kingdom can move and walk and have their being and can eat and can procreate and can do all sorts of things, can heal, can think. The intelligence of our or the, the, the special design of our universe points to the truth of a creator who has the power and the intelligence to begin all those things. So when you reject that, you're rejecting that on the basis of what Adam and Eve are rejecting God's commandments on the basis of. You're rejecting that on the basis of, I have a reality and things that I want to be true, and they may be different than what God says is true, or in fact is just true, so I'm going to live my truth. These, these are all languages uh, specifically that you hear on social media all the time, right? If you're on social media, thankfully I think a lot of you are not on social media. That's a great thing. But we don't have those separate pockets of contrasting truths. It's illogical, really. If you want to get really philosophical and, 
and become a logician and you can you can just destroy that argument that you could have two conflicting truths be true. That doesn't make any sense. There is the truth. And specifically, when Jesus is praying for his people, he's praying that the truth would sanctify them. The reality of who God is against the reality of who we are with the reality that God is working in those people. So change them with what you have declared, what you have commanded with your own being. And the arrival of the lawless one, what we're going to look at today, is everything, every, everything that he's going to do, everything that he's going to be, all the signs and wonders are going to be utilized against what? The truth. And the people that are to believe those or to be deceived by those things are the people who are against the truth or refuse the truth. And so they will be easily swept away by the things that contrast the truth. They'll embrace them very easily. And what we're going to see today is, you know, this can be concerning. It can be heartbreaking. Um, maybe at times it can be a little frightening how these things will happen and take place. But, but the great thing about all of this remains the fact that the truth is God is sovereignly in control of all of this. And one thing I want to show you today is that in judgment, God utilizes these means to bring about his righteous indignation upon those who would refuse the truth and so be saved. So, like I've often said, everything is under his power to use for his designed purposes, which he has configured by what? The counsel of his own will. And so he will <clears throat> use all this. And so the, the lawless one, Satan, they think that they are opposing the truth and that they're doing great things according to what they want to do and to, according to the goals that they have for themselves. But I think what they're kind of ignorant of, or maybe they're not even concerned with, is the fact that they are in God's hand to do what he has uh, decided to be done. Doesn't mean he caused evil. It means it's a tool in his hand to bring about his desired ends and even his desired judgment. So let's get into verse 9 and 10 here. The arrival of lawlessness. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You can quickly glance back up at verse 8, and you can see in verse 9 that there's these two advents. And in verse 9, it's no substitute for Jesus coming in verse 8, because when Jesus arrives, he will destroy these things by 
what? The breath of his mouth and bring to nothing. So one arrival is so much greater than the other arrival. But we're promised that this lesser arrival, which is going to usher in all this wickedness and deception, is coming first because his arrival trumps that one so much so that he will bring it to nothing. So immediately you're, you're called to always have that reality in mind, to sing and to praise and to live, even in, in, a, in an age uh, to come where the lawless one is active, to, to live in such a way that you are living in victory, living joyful, even though you may be sorrowful, rejoicing yet sorrowful. You are, you are living in the victory that is promised to happen. And like I said last week, if the lawless one arrives, you are sure that the arrival of Jesus is sure to follow. And that's the arrival that you are hoping in. His people, I believe, at that time, will have to endure the arrival of this lawless one. But they will endure, as Romans 8 tells us. They will be more than conquerors. Because their hope is in the arrival of Jesus. Notice in verse 9 that his coming is by the activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders. Satan is the power behind this. Have you ever wondered this? Where did Satan get his power? What power does he have? He's not God. He's a fallen angel. He was surely, we've, we've read... Uh, created as, as one of the most beautiful angels ever created. He has a unique power or created being. But his power is allowed. Read Job chapter 1. It demonstrates the kind of power Satan is allowed to have at times. The first things that happened to Job, the removal of his crops and his livestock and even the death of his children, Satan didn't do. Job recognizes that that came from God. And there's righteous judgment and all that in there. God's not wrong in doing that. He's justified even bringing judgment on Job's kids. But but we recognize in Job 1 that 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 was brought from God's hand at Satan's desire, but God's got a bigger plan in mind. And then later on, Job is given power to, or Satan is given power to strike Job's body, except he can't kill him. So, so you see there, just in Job 1, that, that Satan is not allowed to do anything unless... God grants that. Maybe that's troubling to you. And certainly that was troubling to Job for the next 38 chapters, 37 chapters. But then God displays to his people who he is, his eternal promises, his redemption in glory to be eternally separated from sin and the ability or the, or the possibility of the evil one to strike. And then nothing is worth comparing. 
and then all of God's will and plan will make more sense in light of his glory. And that's what he does to Job at the end of the book. He reveals himself and his power and his glory, and Job is simply undone and recognizes his place before the Holy One and who he is before the Holy One, and he repents. And God is glorified, and Satan has proved powerless. It says that the activity of Satan is behind this, and there's going to be uh, power in false signs and wonders. So there will be some, for lack of a better term, amazing things that take place by this lawless one, by the power of Satan. Even things that seem supernatural. Well, in fact, even things that may be supernatural. And this is not abnormal, so to speak, in the spiritual realm. It's, it's the outcome. It's, it's what those things lead to that displays where the power is. If you go back to Exodus 7, which you don't have to do now, you remember when Aaron and Moses are commissioned to go before Pharaoh and, and speak the things that God told them to speak to let his people go. And Aaron is told to throw down his staff and it becomes a serpent, right? Well... Pharaoh summons his sorcerers and his magicians from his kingdom, and they kind of do the same thing. And you're left scratching your head like, how, how is that possible? He just did something from God, this awesome, powerful sign, and it seems like they did the same thing. And we're not really told what was all behind that. It could just been a, an illusion or, or sleight of hand somehow. I don't know. Or it could have been some supernatural evil thing. But notice what happened in Exodus 7 when Aaron's staff has been thrown down and becomes a serpent and when the Egyptian's staff has been thrown down and becomes a serpent. Aaron's serpent swallows up all of the other ones, proving where the power is, where the truth is, where the, where the supreme sovereign rule and authority is. It's with God. And through his people. So supernatural things from the evil one will occur. Matthew 24, 4, Jesus says, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In other words, there's going to be some difficulty in seeing these things. There's going to be some confusion about how can that be? There may even be something pop up in the mind of the elect, God's chosen people. Did God do this? How'd you do that? But we will see where that really came from. We'll be able to uncover as we are intimately aware and knowledgeable of our Father what is from Him and what is not from Him. Paul makes that appeal in Galatians when he tells them, look, if an angel or, or something comes to you and preaches to you a different gospel, let it be accursed. It's not from us. 
Or if we came to you with a different gospel than the one we preached at first, don't listen to that. You know the truth. That's why the truth is so important. And the truth is revealed in the scriptures. That's one of the great reasons our Father has preserved it in such miraculous ways throughout the centuries and has translated it into so many languages throughout the centuries so that we would know the truth. And we would not be held captive by every wind and wave of doctrine or every uh, meaningless genealogy or every word that seems to come from some supernatural source. We have the word. Period. So you've heard it said before, I'm sure, or I hope, that God told me so-and-so, such-and-such, A and B. Um, If it's not in the word, the truth, then God did not tell you. God speaks exclusively in his word. There's discernment by the spirit that happens according to truth and the specifics of life, I'm sure. But all of that will prove to be from the truth. Speak of the truth. Those basic principles we have in the scriptures. So this deception that's promised in verse 10 that he's coming with, this man of lawlessness, it's for those that are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This is for those who resist the truth. And we can personify truth or we can give truth a name. It's Jesus. What does he say about himself? He's the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Embracing the truth is embracing Jesus. If somebody tells me they're a lover of truth, does Jesus have anything to do with that? Which leads or begs the question, at least for me, why do people resist the truth? I've kind of mentioned that briefly because we want our own truth. We want to decide what's best for ourselves. We want to be autonomous from our creator. We want to be God. Really, that's at the heart of every human sin is the pride that we can be or are something greater than we are. There's an English writer and philosopher uh, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, Aldous Huxley. He wrote a book that some of you may know called Brave New World. It's a scientific, futuristic, kind of uh, utopian-style fiction book looking to the future from his point of view. He was kind of a self-described heathen. He led a very fleshly lifestyle for most of his life. And he said this about why people resist the truth, and probably namely Christianity. He said, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and 
liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. His desire to be free in what us humans think of as freedom or the ability to do the things that we want to do, his desire for that allowed him to create a mindset and a worldview that were satisfying enough for him to assume or to discount the meaning of the world. And so he could live the way that he wanted to live. He had a refusal of the truth by his free will. Now, the problem with free will, I'm not going to argue that you don't make decisions. But I will tell you, as the gospel tells us, that that free will is totally corrupt. That from birth, we are by nature children of wrath. That was guaranteed in the fall. Romans 3, 10 through 11, it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That's not our precious free will. Our free will wants what we want. Does the things that we want to do, it's self-serving, it's, it's totally hindered and corrupt by sin. That is why the gospel is so miraculous and awesome. It sets us free. Why else would God have to give us a new heart if our will was okay? Or if our will wasn't held captive by sin and death? We have to have a new heart in order to have new desires. In order to have a will that seeks God, that wants righteousness, that wants understanding, that embraces the truth, we are held captive until that moment. And God gets all the glory for setting those captives free. So that's how people are able to reject the truth, refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. When, when you look at at it in hindsight, if you're a believer. <laughs> if you, you, you see how ridiculous it is to reject the truth and so be saved. You know, it, I use the illustration all the time because it's so vivid in my mind. You're out in the middle of a storm-tossed, dark ocean that just has no end in its depth, and you, you're, you're, you have no, nothing to hold on to. You know, and, and th this illustration doesn't capture the depths of what it means to be lost. But anyways, and, and so you're out there with nothing, and it's just dark, and you don't see anything, and there's no hope, and everything's crashing around you, and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, a, a luxury ship drives by and says, hey, why don't you get on? I have a five-star meal for you. I'm going to take you to uh, eternal peace. You're going to, it's going to be great. Uh, no, no, thanks. I'm enjoying myself here in this storm 
tossed dark ocean of nothing. I mean, comparatively, that's kind of what it's like when we look back in hindsight of what it meant to reject the truth. Why would we not embrace a sovereign God who wants to dwell with us in glory when we have no natural right to be with him or to know anything from him but judgment? Why does he want to give us eternal life when our sentence from birth is death? Why do we want to have hearts that eternally or temporarily hope until everything's made a reality in heaven of the glory that is to come? Why do we refuse that? It's because of sin. It's because of being dead in our sins and trespasses. And the truth will set us free from that. So I pray that God sends the truth to you instead of judgment. Verse 11 and 12. Therefore, in light of all this, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice this. Verse 11. God sends or causes the delusion to go to those who are perishing. It's divine judgment. You don't think God does this or can do this or would do this? You don't think it's extremely dangerous to play around with refusing the gospel? Jesus, read the gospels, especially Matthew. Jesus has no he, does, he doesn't reserve he doesn't hold back what is coming for those who have refused the gospel. Because he says, if the things that I did which confirm and even display the gospel in my presence here with you, if those things happened in Sodom and Gomorrah or Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Um, and I'm doing them here now in your midst, specifically speaking to the Jews who have the prophets, who have the promises, who have the law, who have the scriptures. If they saw this, they would have repented. And, and you've seen it and rejected. Therefore, it will be unbearable for you in the day of judgment, more bearable for those places. Can you, can you imagine? You read in Genesis what happened in Sodom. And that, that's just a small part of probably what daily life was like there. And it's going to be easier for them than the people that reject the gospel. You, you do not spit on God's grace by your rejection of it. He is patient for a time. And he will un leash literal hell against those who refuse his offer of grace. It, he, and he uses these evil forces to bring his judgment sometimes. First Chronicles 21.1 Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel, which is something David wasn't supposed to do. To garner pride for himself. Or more riches for himself. 
And Satan was allowed to incite David to do this. And David gives in as a sinner to the evil schemes of Satan. And Romans 1, Romans 1 is a perfect example of God sending this form of judgment. Okay, Romans 1.24, this is in response to all the ways in which people can reject the truth. Okay, This is exactly what's happening, the first part of Romans 1. And this is, this is how God responds to it. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Do you see what the language was there? God gave them up. Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Romans 1.28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's the image of a parent holding a child's hand. This comes from Dr. Madsen at Midwestern Seminary. A parent holding a child's hand and that, that honorary rebellious child is pulling against the parent's hand so hard and jacking around and smacking everything and trying to go where they're not supposed to go. And eventually the parent just goes, and down goes the child. It's, it's that kind of imagery. You, you refuse the truth long enough, God will give you up. God will give you over to that debased mind that you have to do the things that are contrary to the truth or to nature, to receive in your own body just judgment for those desires. Romans 11.8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Sometimes those who refuse the gospel or think they can put it off assume that it's always going to be there. Listen, God's judgment can come on you while you're still living. To cause you to not only disbelieve the truth, but to believe a lie. To have this strong delusion where you embrace the things that are not true. So that you're brought further into captivity to those things. And you're bonded with the evil one who is to be destroyed. Judgment of God on those who refuse the truth. And it can happen at any moment. Also, think this is interesting. God's sovereign control of these things in order to bring about his judgment. We kind of see this when Jesus orders those demons into the herd of pigs in Matthew 8. Matthew 8, 29 through 32, Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. What's the townspeople's response to this? Not that 
the judgment of God even orders the evil things uh, to do what they do, but they reject him. They reject the truth. They, they drive him out of their place. Which is partially why I think Jesus did this to their livelihood. Judgment. Through ordering the evil intentions of evil to go where he decides they should go. To bring about his judgment. The awesome thing about all of this... <laughs> Is not that God will will consistently and constantly stand in righteousness, and He will He will not allow um, evil lawlessness to enjoy His presence of blessing. The awesome thing is that, as one commentator says, Satan and this man of lawlessness think that they are opposing God's will. They are accomplishing God's purposes against them. They are serving God's will. (laughs) You see that? So it it leads us to remember who reigns sovereignly supreme even over the evil things. That creates some problems in our thinking because we associate that with God being the author of evil. But that's not the case. He is he is displaying to his people and eventually to everyone that there is only one who reigns supreme. And for his people, all things will work together for good. And for those that are not his people, all things will work together for their judgment. So that even in the midst of allowing the evil things to bring about judgment, God's people will experience a conquering like Aaron's serpent had over those false serpents. But those that are not his people, they're just left with judgment eternally. And and God proves Who's on the throne? And this all hinges on what? Verse 12. This all is in order that they may all be condemned. Who's they all? Who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Therefore, life and death hinge on knowing and believing what? The truth. Not intellectually knowing and believing the truth. Satan knows who God is. Satan knows what God says. Satan knows what God has accomplished. Satan knows what God is going to accomplish. He knows that better than we do. But he doesn't know him as Father. He doesn't acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. He gave that up a long time ago. You and I have the unique opportunity to embrace the truth. Because if you go back to verse 10, the language that's used about those who refuse the truth is that they refuse to love the truth. They refused to take a look 
at a gracious, merciful God. They refused to take a humble look at their deadness and ineptness of their own desires and of their own will and of their own flesh. They refused to fall before him in worship and to cry out for mercy. They refused to show up to the wicked gate, using a Pilgrim's Progress reference, humbly and undeserving. They refuse to embrace the reality that God is God and I am man. They refuse to embrace the fear of the Lord, which can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that, that will be the condemnation for all those who are to be judged unrighteous. But for those that are to be judged righteous, there's going to be an embracing of the truth, a humble reception of the fact that they need a Savior and that Jesus is that, and He is Lord. And so they won't just confess intellectually these things They will cry out for them humbly and undeserving. So God reigns supreme. To that we say amen. So I ask now that you'd respond to him in light of his truth. And then we'll stand and sing together.